Greetings, Dr. Beckett. Welcome to the Quantum Leap Podcast. You are listening to the Quantum Leap Podcast. Bonus episode, science fiction double feature. Quantum Leap, oh, Quantum Leap, leaping throughout time. Quantum Leap, oh, Quantum Leap, look at them leap, it's no crime. Quantum Leap, oh, Quantum Leap, changing history. He helped you, he helped me, by jumping Quantum Leap. Quantum Leap, get leaping. Leaping from year to year Quantum Leap Get leaping with him You will have no fear Quantum Leap, oh Quantum Leap He'll save the future By going back to the past He'll fix things up for sure Quantum Leap. Greetings and salutations, Leapers, and welcome to another bonus episode of the Quantum Leap podcast, a special double feature uh, about the curse of Tahotep and Blood Moon. Joining me, we have... I'm Albie. Uh, welcome back, Albie. It's good having you back on the podcast. It's been a while. It's great to be here. I mean, you and me, the B-team, doing the... B-movie double feature? I'm pretty excited about it. These aren't really sci-fi. They're more horror, I think, right? What are they? Just creepy. They're not even horror. Yeah, but I think the whole genre is science fiction that Quantum Leap falls under, isn't it? That's true, maybe. A reanimation of dead flesh, mummies, uh, I don't know. Sounds delicious. So we've decided we would have a little Halloween party, just and we'll watch these episodes and talk about them. Uh, what have you come as? I went through a couple of different costume changes before I came. My first thought was Slave Leia. I finally uh, decided on Slutty Pumpkin. Fair enough. I was hoping you'd do Dr. Frankenfurter. There's two types of men in this world. Those that watch Dr. Frankenfurter and lies. <laughs> well, I can't dress like that. Then it wouldn't be a costume. That's what I wear every night. Yeah, well, that is true. That is true. And uh, I'm here as Professor Severus Snape from Harry Potter. And there will be no foolish wand-waving or silly incantations in this podcast. Are you a Potterhead? I am such a Pothead. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I actually had this costume on hand because I uh, went to a Harry Potter trivia night a couple of weeks ago. I came second in the costume contest, and <laughs> we won the trivia night. That sounds, so, that sounds messy. Uh, did, where'd you place? Oh, we won it. Oh, good. We got 102 marks out of 103. And unfortunately, four other teams also got that. So we had to do a tiebreaker and I won in the tiebreaker. So that's pretty awesome. Was there a Hermione there? There was everyone there. There was an Umbridge. There was a few Hermione's. There were a couple of Harry's and Ron's. There was a Dumbledore. There was a Voldemort. There was someone who just got up and said he'd come dressed as a muggle. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, there was everyone. It was great. The one, the two people who won each round of the costume contest one had dressed up like Luna Lovegood, and she was actually the spitting image of Luna Lovegood, like, and had the glasses and um, the weird accessories and all that. So I'm not surprised she won. <laughs> and and uh, the one who won the other round, he'd done himself up to have a great big 
piece of cardboard around his head and it says, have you seen this wizard? It was like the wanted poster. So he was uh, <laughs> serious black in the wanted poster. Wow. And the picture of him moved, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, that's the whole point. I like Havana Lynch who played Luna. Yeah. She's uh, really pretty. She's on uh, American Dancing with the Stars right now. She's doing pretty good. Oh, very good. Did you know there's an American porn star who is her absolute doppelganger? You'll have to send me the link later. <laughs> well, I'm not sure. I, <laughs> I can't actually remember where to get it from, but I know it's there. Mr. Ghoul. Um, <laughs> speaking of being a pothead, this episode, the first one we're watching, talking about, is The Curse of Tahotep, which is season four, episode 20, which is 420. Did you do that on purpose, episode 420? No, I didn't, actually. It's just a really nice coincidence. <laughs> These were your suggestions. So uh, I enjoyed them. What was your inspiration for doing these two episodes? Well, I wanted to do something for Halloween, and there's only so many times we can watch and talk about the Halloween episode. And there's only so many times we can tempt fate as well. (laughs) I'm not doing it anymore. I learned my lesson. I had three (laughs) years of bad luck. Three years. Oh, not good. Not good. I'm glad I'm on the other side of the world because I've kind of of been able to distance myself, but... uh, yeah, <laughs> that's the way the uh, MP3 compression works. Whatever's in the wave over here gets us, and whatever's stripped out of it, you don't get it over there. So that's what it is. Oh, we don't get anything over here. Our internet's shocking. Rupert Murdoch basically bought a couple of our elections and destroyed our broadband network so that he wouldn't lose money on Foxtel. So, yeah, we can't get anything. Are you talking about footy? I don't understand most Australian stuff. <laughs> no, I'm talking about internet. Just oh. being able to watch and stream tv it's only for now anything it'll get better does he have a term limit who rupert murdoch whoever's in charge of (laughs) whoever he paid to fix the stuff there's another election in may of next year so um, they are going to get absolutely decimated but yes thankfully we have compulsory voting over here compulsory what does that mean you have to vote you have to vote if you don't vote you get fined that is awesome i love it that should be a rule here. Yeah, well, like, what, 10% of our people vote over here? Yeah, that's pretty much it. And uh, that really annoys me, actually, because, uh, you know, what happens in America affects the rest of the world. What you all do affects me. So you should at least e- everyone be trying to make sure that the best possible outcomes happen. November 6th here in the States, if you're uh, listening in the States, guess who voted yesterday? Awesome. Good job. I voted and uh, Serenity voted. It was the third time she voted. Uh, they let kids vote here. If you're under 18, you have to vote for a cartoon character, and you get to keep the ballot <laughs> when you go home, but uh, it's fun. You, you know, like, they learn. It's pretty cool. Awesome. Who did she vote for? Wonder Woman. It was a secret ballot. It's, it was secret, but awesome. she was very proud. She voted for Wonder Woman, which she voted for in the election two years ago, but Wonder Woman didn't win um, the Joker or Penguins won, something like that. And uh, uh, Okay. But she voted for Wonder Woman, and she voted for uh, Catwoman and uh, Superman. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Well, speaking of the Joker, you have to come to Australia. We'll go to the Gold Coast to Movie World, which is the Warner Brothers theme park we've got here. Um, They have a ride called the Arkham Asylum. And uh, what you can do, you can either just ride the roller coaster or you can put on a virtual reality headset and ride the roller coaster. And with the virtual reality on it, um, you've basically been captured by the Joker and obviously you're strapped in. So it's you're actually, you know, tied up and uh, he puts a gas mask on you. And then the entire roller coaster is like a massive hallucination. It is insane. That sounds good. I want to do that. Is uh, How close are you to Melbourne? I'm in Melbourne. Oh, that's perfect, because that's where I want to visit. I saw it recently on uh, WWE had a big pay-per-view there. I guess your town was pretty clogged up with people from all over the country swarming it to fill that stadium, whatever it's called. <laughs> Would it have been the MCG? 
I, that sounds familiar. Yeah, Undertaker and Triple H yeah. were there, so they sold out the place, and they had chairs all over awesome. the field. Was it a cricket field? Yeah, it's the Melbourne Cricket Ground, but they also do um, a lot of our football matches there as well. Cool, yeah. It was the first time they were there in 10 years, so it was crazy. But uh, they showed a lot of the town. It looked really nice. I want to visit. Yeah, well, come and visit me. We'll do everything Melbourne has to offer, and then we'll shoot up to Queensland and go to the Gold Coast. That sounds fun. Awesome. But um, I believe we were talking about uh, the Curse of Tahotep, weren't we? Yes, the Curse of Tahotep. Could you uh, remind me what it's about? It's been a few hours since I watched it. Season 4, Episode 20, The Curse of Tahotep. Leap date, March the 2nd, 1957. Original broadcast date, April the 22nd, 1992. Written by Chris Rupenthal. Directed by Joe Napolitano. A leap that on the surface seems like a massive treat will prove to be tricky. As Sam leaps in, he finds himself on all fours in a man-sized tunnel and is told by a woman behind him to hurry up. He crawls through and enters a chamber filled with ancient Egyptian relics. Sam and his female companion are clearly astounded by the discovery. Sam notices hieroglyphics on the wall, and as he has a doctorate in ancient languages, can read their message. As for anyone who should disturb the tomb of King Tahotep, death will swallow him. Oh boy. Sam's companion, Ginny, recognises King Tahotep II's cartouche, and confirms that this is, in fact, his tomb. Sam is gobsmacked at this opportunity, himself having dreamt of making this discovery in his youth. They wonder where the mummy of Tahotep is. Ginny thinks that the sarcophagus, which, according to legend, is solid gold, must have been stolen, as there are scratch marks on the floor. But Sam believes that the mummy is in another chamber. Sam is reminded of news of a solid gold sarcophagus having been broken up and sold in 1963, which confuses Ginny, as that is six years from them, placing Sam in 1957. Ginny suggests letting the two mare out, thinking the dust is messing with Sam's head. At camp, Al expresses his disgust at the camels and his delight at how Ginny looks in her shorts. Al explains that Sam is in the aura of Dr. Dale Conway, Professor of Archaeology at Kansas State University. His companion is Dr. Ginny Will, Professor of Egyptology at Brown University. And they're on a dig in Egypt. Sam is starstruck having found out his companion's identity, as she is famous for her work, and he has read all her papers. Sam excitedly tells Al that they have found the tomb of Tahotep, which is astonishing to Al and Ziggy, as up to their present day, the discovery had never been reported, and the tomb still has not been discovered. Al explains that in the original history, both Dale and Ginny disappear without a trace during this dig. Al thinks it's the curse, but Sam refuses to call off the dig, as this discovery is bigger than even that of King Tut. Ginny returns to the tent and hopes this discovery will mean gaining better grants for proper digs, but notices Dale's canary is not in its cage. She finds out where it went when she moves some clothing and discovers a cobra in the tent. Luckily, the snake does not attack, but some of the locals who are helping on the dig, Ali and Gamal, 
urge Sam to leave this evil place. Dr. Mustafa El Razul, the head of the Department of Antiquities at the Luxor Museum and their partner on the dig, arrives by car at the campsite and expresses his disappointment at finding out the hard way of the movement of the campsite. However, he is cheered up by the news of the discovery of Tahotep's tomb, though laments the apparent grave robbing. Sam and Ginny give him a tour of the tomb, but while they read the inscription describing the curse, they hear a scream from the campsite. They rush to the supply tent, and one of the locals, Ali, has died, having been stung by scorpions. Al tells Sam it is the curse. Overhearing Sam protest this, Razul explains that only a son of Egypt like himself, who has seen what he has seen, should dismiss the legends of the curse. He says that Tahotep's car, spirit body, could still be guarding his tomb. And although Sam is sceptical, he logically deduces that if this is true, then the body must still be nearby. This sparks Razul's interest, who recalls the legend of Tahotep having a diamond scarab the size of a cow's eye, called the Heart of Tahotep, with which he would supposedly perform magic and also with which he would one day walk again on Earth. Ginny reminds them that they must deal with Ali's death first. Mustafa offers to return his body to his family, but he is unable to move his car, as a steering rod has snapped. Gamal offers to fix the car. Back in the tomb, Al tries to distract himself from his own fears by recounting the time he dated an Egyptian girl with a nice asp. In their conversation, Sam and Al bicker over the validity of the curse. Sam thinks the events were all coincidences, but Al thinks they were all planned, and theorises that somebody in the camp might be trying to murder everyone else so that they can steal the relics and sell them on the black market the same actions that have been carried out by tomb robbers for centuries. Sam suggests that Al, as a hologram, should be able to walk through the walls and find hidden chambers, but Al can't see in the dark, and Ziggy can't do a spatial comparison search because a chip is acting up. The imaging chamber door is also clearly not functioning properly. That night, around the campfire, Mustafa says how 3,500 years ago, in the exact same position, men and women then also sat around campfires, preparing to bury their king. And now they are all grains of sand. He wonders what is the point of it all. Sam recalls being fascinated by the pyramids and pharaohs in his youth, astounded that something could be so old, and associated studying them to leaping back in time. Al returns and tells Sam that Ziggy has a new theory on why everyone disappeared. A huge sandstorm is to arrive the next day, which is going to bury everything and everyone in its path. Al is urging Sam to get everyone to leave for their own safety, but Sam is determined that this discovery can't be lost. Al offers to have Ziggy do a spatial comparison search in his time, and then they can rediscover it. But Ziggy tells him that the tomb and everything in it was destroyed in the 1960s during the building of a dam. Sam assures Al that they will leave in the morning with Mustafa, but they must find and save Tahotep before then. In the tomb, Sam thinks that the burial chamber is so well hidden that it must be hidden in plain sight. So deduces that the false door that's painted on the wall must be the real door. He smashes through the wall and discovers the burial chamber. 
As Sam blows away some dust off the sarcophagus, he hears a blood-curdling scream. Ginny and Razul have discovered Gamal's dead body, crushed under Razul's car, the jack having apparently slipped. Razul and Al both blame Tahotep. Ginny is distraught. Razul wants to leave as soon as possible, and Al continually shifts his suspicion of murder to each of them. Sam cheers everyone, sans Al, up by showing them his discovery. They are astounded by the riches in the room and the fact that Tahotep is intact, which Razul says will be the crown jewel of Egypt. On opening the sarcophagus, they discover a magnificent gold covering of the king's likeness, and when they remove the pins and take off the lid, find the mummy and a set of hands holding the heart of Tahotep. As Sam tries to remove the heart, they hear an explosion and discover that their campsite has been set alight. Al tells Sam that Ziggy calculated the odds of all these tragic events happening by coincidence is 40,000 to 1. Sam gets so frustrated by this that he runs straight back to the burial chamber and to prove that there is not a curse, decides that the thing that would infuriate the car of Tahotep the most would be somebody stealing the heart. He removes it from the mummy, but it is booby-trapped. The hands close, and this sets off a mechanism that blocks the entrance with a large stone, trapping them in the chamber. Sam and Ginny try unsuccessfully to escape by attempting to smash the stone, move it out of the way, and open the hands to reverse the mechanism. Al tells them to remain calm, as they won't think of a way out otherwise, but they only have 12 hours before the sandstorm hits. They call to Razul, who's on the other side of the blockage, and tell him to drive to the nearest town and to bring back help. Ironically for an archaeologist, Ginny admits that she's getting a little claustrophobic, which puts the idea in Al's head. He tries to leave, but the malfunctioning chip prevents the imaging chamber door from opening, so Al is stuck there with them. Thinking that if Tahotep really believed he'd come back to life, Sam realises that he too would need a way to get out and so there must be a key to be able to either open a back door or unseal the trap. They cut open the mummy, thinking the key must be there, and discover that the mummy is better preserved than others, having not had its organs removed. Sam realises that just like the burial chamber itself, the key had also been hiding in plain sight. The heart of Tahotep has a message in hieroglyphics, May Nephthys and Isis guide my way. Sam pushes on Nephthys' and Isis's faces, which are painted on the back wall. He finds that the wall moves and reopens the hands. Upon returning the heart, the mechanism is reversed and they exit the chamber. Their relief is short-lived, though. Al tries to warn them that Razul is waiting for them holding a gun, but they are too late. Razul wants to sell the artifacts for himself. Razul is surprised when Sam says, Now you're going to kill us too as he had not killed Ali and Gamal, and thought it was either Ginny or Sam. It turns out they were accidents. He leads Sam and Ginny back to the burial chamber, and forces them to recount how they were trapped and how they escaped. Sam explains they removed the heart and returned it. Razul removes the heart, intending to trap them, but with a swift roundhouse kick, Sam gets the gun away from Razul, and in his surprise, both Ginny and Sam escape before the stone drops. Razul himself is now trapped. Al gets some new information from Ziggy, that no matter how much Ginny and Dean search, 
they are never able to find the tomb of Tahotep again. Razul pleads for them to help him return the heart and escape. Despite El's warning that the sandstorm is not far off, they tell Razul how to escape. Al finds out that the malfunctioning imaging chamber door isn't due to a faulty chip, but from a new program Ziggy had been running. From Egypt. Razul follows Sam's instructions, but tempting fate twice was not a good idea. Tahotep has come back to life. Razul lets out a blood-curdling scream, and Al goes through the wall to see what has happened. He immediately runs back looking stunned. Tahotep is killing Razul. The stone begins to move. Tahotep wants to once again walk the earth. As Sam and Ginny attempt to escape, Sam leaps. Alright, so Albie, what are your thoughts about the Curse of Tahotep? Um, my thoughts are weird because I, I enjoyed it. It's okay. And, um, it's hard to not enjoy an episode of Quantum Leap. And there's a little bit of a mystery going on. And since I hadn't watched this episode in years, I, I think probably decades, maybe, um, for some reason in my memory, the whole Tahotep thing took place in a museum, like a, oh, like okay. a, a museum with, um, um, an Egyptian, like display going on for some reasons. I think you've mixed it up with uh, not at the museum because I think I might that happens have. there. Because <laughs> nobody nobody chewed bubblegum. No statues chewed bubblegum either. So I might have mixed it up. And but, no uh, Robert I, Williams. <laughs> no. I, I remembered it a lot, but as I went along. So it was like one of those hidden memories. So I had no idea who done it until the very end. So it was fun for me. Well, that's interesting because I still have no idea who done it. <laughs> It's actually left really open-ended as to whether or not all those events were accidents or whether or not it was actually the curse. Well, you know, me, you and me being uh, non-believers in mumbo-jumbo um, would probably look for a logical explanation. Uh, you know, it looked like throughout the thing that it could have been anybody. It could have been Ginny. It could have been Razul. Or it could have been a couple of the guys there. That's what I thought, like, maybe uh, the people that lived in Egypt, they didn't want their burial grounds disrupted so they were like messing with people like enforcing the curse but since the one got bitten by a snake and the other one had a car fall on him i was like hmm, maybe it's not them i think he was actually i think he was actually stung by scorpions was um, it scorpions it was scorpions oh yeah. that's right the snake was earlier that's and, it and yeah it, it could have been those dangerous statues they kept cutting to yeah well that's it they they obviously were trying to come up with a creepy sort of motif which worked well I tend not to get creeped out or scared by TV or movies, though. So, I mean, I could see what they were trying to do. And I think that um, if I was a bit more impressionable, I would have been creeped out. But <laughs> we could definitely see what they were trying. Yeah, to me, the story wasn't creepy, but they were trying to make it creepy, like extra creepy with the, the shots to the statues and the holding on the statues and the creepy music. And there wasn't anything really scary about it. I, th I think um, just because the only thing really creepy about it is the fact that Al's creeped out 
and that's not really creepy. And it's kind of associated with monster movies because of the universal monsters and, of course, the mummy. And what did they make? Like 10 of those original mummy yeah. films. And so that those are kind of creepy. But the whole thing is you have a mummy coming after you, walking slowly, never going to catch you kind of thing. Uh, in this, all you see is a hand at the end, really. And that could have been just uh, – I don't want to jump to the end, but it could have been something else. Yeah, well, I guess so. Um, I think something that was affecting my ability to suspend my disbelief too was I think the set looked very fake. Did you think that as well? No, all old Egyptian tombs are built out of styrofoam. Yeah, well, maybe I'm just very good at picking that up. But, uh, (laughs) I mean, especially when Sam was smashing through the wall to try and get into the burial chamber. I mean, it was obvious it was made of plaster. Pretty sure they didn't have plaster back in ancient Egypt. Yeah, it wasn't stone. That, yeah. That's for sure. Yeah, at least that wasn't foam. It was uh, a plaster. But uh, I think if they did the lighting better, it would have sold it more. But maybe it wasn't the lighting. I'd, I'd be interested. I watched it on Blu-ray today. I'd be interested to see uh, how it looked originally on TV and if it was darker or originally or and they made it brighter now. Because if it was darker, I think it would have looked more real. Especially yeah. when they had like one lantern for the whole place and it looked like all the floodlights were on. Yeah, and like Al saying, well, if I walk through the wall, it's going to be dark. I'm not going to be able to see anything. Couldn't he take a torch with him? I don't understand why he couldn't do that. <laughs> That's but, true. Uh, and I'm pretty sure all hand links, which we now call smartphones, would be equipped with one. So it definitely has a flashlight and if nothing else it has a bullet searching beam that's blue light right yeah well he he can turn it into a metal detector why can't he turn it into a torch he or did have a whatever it is you want to call it he did have a good idea to where he couldn't bump into things obviously but yeah yeah there there should be some lights coming off the led and i think we've seen before that his hand link cast light on other things right not just him yeah well there seems to be a bit of um, controversy on what actually happens with Al. Like, okay. um, I remember Chris and um, Allison and Matt were talking about in Last Dance Before an Execution how Al was able to talk to Sam through the phone. And um, they they were hypothesizing, well, maybe it's just that um, because he's linked up to the brainwaves, Al could talk from anywhere and Sam would be able to hear him. And I don't think that's actually right because um, we've kind of established that Al actually is there. I mean, if he wasn't there, then um, children and animals wouldn't be able to see him and he wouldn't be able to affect things. So um, I think what actually happens is that his hologram, his his vision and his um, audio actually is projected into the past, kind of like a kind of like a radio wave, and it's kind of like you just have to be tuned into it properly to be able to see and hear him. It's like um, there's there's always going to be radio and television waves in the air, but unless you've got a radio or a television to pick it up, you're not going to be able to see them or feel them. Does that make sense? It does make sense. Yes, I I, I buy your explanation, and I also bought. Uh, Allison and uh, Chris and Matt's because I I thought well yeah that makes sense too so I think both of them could work yeah well from my point of view if he's there then obviously he should be able to talk down the phone because you know Sam's tuned into him right. it would be like if um if I'm talking to you on Skype now if you had the television on in the background I should be able to hear the TV so that's true. 
Yeah. And yeah. like, I, I, for me, I didn't think Al needed to talk into the phone. It was just like habit. You know, if you're talking to yeah. somebody on the phone, you talk into the phone, even if you don't well, need it. to. Yeah. Yeah. Well, he could have just, he could have just pressed the hand link and sent it himself back on Sam if he'd really wanted to. I That's think it might've just been to save a bit of time or maybe a, um, maybe a special effect. So who knows? He could pop around. Yeah. Save money. Yeah. But, but uh, also on the, on the subject of, um, the set looking fake, the geography also didn't really look right because, uh, like at the campsite, all the tents are around the hole, which looks like they found a staircase or made a staircase, <laughs> one of the two, which led into the tomb. And it looked like the tomb had a door and that you could actually just walk into it. Mm-hmm. But then, but then from the inside and from the beginning, we see they've got to crawl in through a tunnel. So that doesn't make sense to me either. <laughs> It was kind of weird. It was like uh, the exterior shots and the interior shots might not have uh, coordinated. Yeah. Well, look, it's obvious that the the tomb was a set Mm -hmm. and the outside might have been either an outside set dressed up or they might have actually found a desert. I don't know. But uh, yeah, it didn't match. (laughs) Uh, A couple of shots looked like it was almost an interior that they brought a whole bunch of sand in. Yeah, well. So, So I don't know. That was preventing me from suspending my disbelief as well, unfortunately. Hmm. Again, I uh, think if you, you if you made the episode a little darker, it might look... Maybe it's because I got my TV turned all the way bright. I don't know. What did you think about the story? Um, I didn't mind the story. There were a lot of um, interactions between the characters that I did not like. The story I thought was fine. I mean... It's a pretty standard sort of cursed mummy sort of story where you go and disturb the tomb and then weird things happen and then you either prove that there's no curse or you end up either killed or having to destroy the mummy. So it seemed like a pretty standard sort of mummy story. It was entertaining. Um, It wasn't brilliant, but it wasn't bad. So what did you think? I enjoyed the story just because of the mystery. And uh, watching it this time, you remembered who did it, right? Yeah. So was it a mystery for you the first time? Like, had you figured it out that it wasn't anybody or a mummy, possibly? Well, I can't remember that far back, to be honest. Because <laughs> <laughs> I was only about 10 years old when I did watch it the first time. And I had a very short attention span. I don't think that I picked it was actually the mummy, but I I would have thought Razul, and it seemed like it was him all the way up to the end anyway. To me, I was thinking Ginny, for some reason, just because it's not usually the woman, until they uh, started accusing each other. And then I loved the false reveal that it was Razul standing up there with the gun. Then you're like, oh, of course, it was him the whole time doing all this, but then it wasn't. Yeah, well, the, I admit that was a, a pretty good bait and switch, and mm-hmm. I think it's funny that the red herring, which is Ginny, who also has red hair, always, is, yeah, um, and of course Ginny Weasley has red hair as well. So, <laughs> <laughs> so that's all I could think about every time she said Ginny. All the Weasleys. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. How do we keep bringing Harry Potter back into this? I don't. <laughs> I think that's you. I think that's you. Yeah. So the story was okay, it was entertaining, but what I really didn't like is um, some of the interactions actually between Sam and Al. Um, This is an episode that both Zoe and Leslie say they don't like at all because of how Sam treats Al, 
Um, he's really been a rotten friend in this episode. He's condescending towards Al's fears. I mean, as irrational as they might be, or are they? Um, he tries to make Al do things that he doesn't want to do, telling him, oh, just suck it up and walk through the walls and find the chambers and then you can get out of here. Or he also makes him go and see what's happened to Razul at the end when the mummy's killing him and essentially telling him, Either, you know, be of some use or go away, and even calls him useless at one stage. I mean, I thought Al was being incredibly supportive in this episode, more so than usual. He wanted to be there to keep Sam company, because in a situation that he finds scary, I'm sure he's feeling empathy and thinks Sam might be feeling scared as well. And more importantly, he's trying to keep Sam safe from the sandstorm, but Sam has such tunnel vision in this leap. All he wants above all else is to have Tahotep be discovered, and he doesn't consider Al's feelings at all. So, yeah, I don't like Sam in this episode at all. I would agree with uh, the harsh way that Sam treated Al. Um, I I really bought it, though, because, one, his interest in ancient Egypt and uh, discovering Tahotep and knowing that nobody ever did. And then finding out that there was the ticking clock of the episode, which was the sta- uh, imminent sandstorm. So he was, like, in a hurry to get it, like discovered and found for science and his drive for that singular purpose. I think anything that stood in his way, like Al being creeped out about something or anything else. And of course, Sam normally having a logical scientific mind, of course, it's not a mummy. It's not a a curse. It's not anything like that. It's obviously logical explanations. It could be coincidences and a lot of them combined. So he was at no point scared until I think the very end when Al told him what was happening inside the chamber. Oh, I think he might have been a bit scared too, being trapped in the tomb. That uh, I think that would freak him out too. With a sandstorm on the way, I don't blame him because he knows yeah. what happens. You can try your hardest to make a discovery without hurting other people in the process, though. So that's why I don't like Sam much in the episode. Yeah, but I think we've all been there. We've all been. We've all been with a friend and had a singular purpose and they had a, they had another idea of what was going on and one, one gets frustrated with the other. So I, I bought it. I didn't think there it was outside their characters. And I, I think uh, the writing was good for this episode in that it would have been nicer if they were nice to each other, but it was Al's job in this episode to sell the spooky, creepy factor because Sam doesn't have that. I don't know. I, th- I think they could have done it better. Yeah, maybe. Uh, the only example I'm thinking of is like uh, his thought process. Uh, the one part you see is when uh, he says how the tent caught on fire and exploded. He just said this This is obviously what happened. The, the little bit of the fire flew over to there, got on the tent, got in the kerosene and blew up. And it's like it's like he's such a genius that he sees how everything happened and works out almost like a Sherlock Holmes would. It's almost like everybody else is like Lestrade to where nobody knows what's going on except Sherlock. So I think nobody knows what's going on except Sam. So, But having said that, though, this is actually one of the few supernatural-themed episodes where Sam's not able to come up with a logical explanation for a lot of the stuff that goes on. He kind of just brushes it off as coincidence. Like the the scorpions, he's just like, oh, well, scorpions live in Egypt with... Um, but with the jack falling and um, the car crushing Gamal and with the snake and with all that stuff, he's just all the time, it's just a coincidence that this is going on. 
the thing with the fire is one of the few times that he's actually come up with a logical explanation. And uh, I actually like the fact that Al, you know, kind of snaps and says, Ziggy says that the chance of these things happening all by coincidence is 40,000 to one. And um, yeah, so I actually thought that it was a good progression for both of them to, you know, get frustrated with each other. And that's ultimately, ultimately what leads Sam to go and take the heart and end up getting trapped. So it, I guess it did help move the story along. But uh, yeah, I just don't like seeing such good friends fight like that. Well, not fight, but yeah, not fight, but um, treat each other poorly. Treat each other poorly. Yeah. Yes. Does the math add up? Does 40,001 seem right to you? <laughs> I would think that the chance of any one of those things happening would have been or less than 40 to 1 uh, 40,000 to 1 so so no oh, really? yeah, the math doesn't really add up just a I'd number they you, pulled out of their asp yeah <laughs> i love that i love when <laughs> al was talking about uh, the egyptian girl who had a nice asp <laughs> <laughs> of course he dated an egyptian girl who hasn't right well if it's a mummy then she's less likely to say no isn't she are you my mummy <laughs> Are you, are you saying Al wants to get some odor? <laughs> we are so going to wear out this hand link emoji. <laughs> yes. Oh, my goodness. Uh, this is definitely a bonus show, a bonus hand link show. <laughs> I really enjoyed the the red herring stuff from Ginny because obviously, like, when he, she goes to get the flashbulbs, you think she's setting something up like the yeah. fire. And it could have been her the whole time. You don't know. Now, this is actually one of the few leaps that Sam fails. Or at the very least, he doesn't completely accomplish. I mean, we can probably assume that Dean and Ginny do survive the sandstorm, since Ziggy tells Al that they never find Tahotep's tomb again. And I mean, why would he say that if they didn't end up looking again? Right. But this was before Tahotep came back to life. And since the stone was moving, we can assume he was trying to get out. Now, Sam leaps before we can find out if Tahotep tries to kill Dean and Ginny as well. And we don't know what havoc Tahotep's going to cause. So um, it's really interesting, too, in the positioning of this episode in the series, because it's just two episodes before A Leap for Lisa, which is the one where Sam first says that success has nothing to do with leaping. Something that Chris and I had predicted was that the reason they shifted the paradigm from complete the mission or you don't leap to success has nothing to do with leaping is so that they could do the Lee Harvey Oswald episode for the um, season five opener and have it still make sense in the Quantum Leap universe. But if they're going to say that, that means they have to have some recent evidence of leaps not being completely successful. In universe, I guess it does make sense that they learn more about how leaping works the longer they do it, and so they would adjust their way of thinking to match what they found. And I think also, from a production standpoint, um, you open yourself up sometimes to tell a better story if sometimes um, they don't necessarily succeed. So um, I think that this is one of the episodes where we start to see that paradigm shift. There are others, but I think this is one where it's most noticeable. For me, it surprised me. It was like an abrupt ending. I, I didn't feel like yeah. I had the ending to an episode. I fe felt like we we're going into the ending and then he leaped. And I was like, eh, kind of a jip. Yeah, well, that's true. And it seemed kind of um, kind of the wrong place for Al to be talking about um, what happens to Dean and Ginny as well, how they never find Tahotep's tomb again. I mean, um, my only thought must be that 
history's changed and that Ziggy's picked up on it and is telling him then. But yeah, you could kind of tell that the episode must have been coming to an end there because that's where he usually talks about what ends up happening to them, even though it looked like there was going to be more that had to happen. Maybe you can clarify something for me. I was a little confused. The The running thing through the show was they couldn't quite get information because the chip was no good. And uh, then at the end, it wasn't a chip. It was a, a program that was uploaded from Egypt. What was that about? I didn't feel like that resolved. I, di- I didn't quite get what they were trying to talk about. I think what must have been happening is Ziggy must have been trying to get information from Egypt. And... Ziggy must have been having trouble with that and must have had to be running Egyptian programs. And one of the Egyptian programs must have been corrupted and was affecting Ziggy and affecting some things happening in the project. That's Like a virus or a worm? Well, maybe it was even the curse. Who knows? A virus curse. Yeah. Or maybe Ziggy's just no good at translating Egyptian. Who knows? <laughs> maybe I just wasn't putting it together right. I don't know. Yeah. Ziggy's not C-3PO. She can't necessarily <laughs> translate six million forms of communication. <laughs> Most of them, but only the ones that Google can. True, yeah. Right. So that, that, that's my thought. I, th- I think that um, it must have just been because she was trying to get information from Egypt and was having trouble interfacing or something like that. Okay. You know, the one thing about watching uh, Quantum Leap now versus watching it when it was originally on, back then Ziggy did amazing things. Like she could look up anything in the world, any human Mm. knowledge, and Al could have it right on his hand link. But now all of us have that power. As long as we're in Wi-Fi or have some kind of data plan, we can know anything that the planet knows pretty much instantaneously. So uh, I think that was an accurate representation of the future. Yeah, mostly accurate. There are times when <laughs> Ziggy's still picking up information that she, that she couldn't ever possibly know. Like, for example, uh, in Another Mother, <laughs> knowing when the kid's going to lose his virginity or something like that. <laughs> but Right, unless he blogged about it later in life. Well, that's true as well. I mean, he didn't look to be very smart, so he probably would put something stupid like that up. <laughs> Speaking about putting something stupid up like that, check out Albi.ws for When I Lost My Virginity. Yeah, um, that's my blog scared? site. <laughs> You're like awkward pause. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Were you frightened being in that dark little room all on your own? <laughs> no, I had the TV on with the squiggly lines of the Playboy Channel scrambled. <laughs> uh, I th- uh, by the way, uh, leapers, this uh, show has an R rating. Just so you know. <laughs> oh, now you now you say it. No, just all hand links from all the way down. Hand links on top of hand links all the way down. Well, they won't be able to hear us. Well, well maybe that's, that's a good thing. Yeah, <laughs> since, since Chris sang um, "Private Dancer," I don't think anyone wants to hear any of our voices. I can't believe you're not. I cannot believe you're not going to let me sing. Science nope. No, 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 no. I told you, no singing, no singing in this show. I said I would do the, I would do the show, but no, no singing. It's not karaoke. It's a quantum only podcast. Come on, man. And I brought my karaoke machine here for nothing. I'm sure you did. Um, well, it's a party. We'll see what happens after we go off the air. Okay. Mm, I'll have to get you very drunk. Maybe slip you a roofie. <laughs> It's not It's not difficult. I leave my drink unattended all the time on purpose. Uh, you'll end up dressed like Frankenfurter at some point throughout the night. Usually, yeah. That's how I feel most comfortable. Okay. Yeah. I thought um, a little bit of cool trivia might be, um, might be worth talking about. Um, now, I did this not look is, up any of it. Neither did I. I did it from memory. 
Mm. I could go get my book, but I can't be no, that's all right. in the house. This is one of only a handful of times when Sam leaps out of the United States. The others I can think of being Vietnam in The Leap Home Part 2, uh, Japan and Russia in Lee Harvey Oswald, England in Blood Moon, and somewhere in the Pacific in Leaping of the Shrew. It is nice to see that he's, you know, travelling a bit further around the globe because... I mean, I know it's a show intended for American audiences, but uh, it was starting to gain popularity throughout the world. So you'd want to see different parts of the world eventually, especially because, you know, other people besides Americans do have problems that need fixing as well. I agree. I th- I think it, sh- it the whole show should have taken place all over the world. Why not, right? Unless there was more than yeah. one leaper and you have one leaper per country and, you know, but he knows so many different languages. Maybe he was just reassigned because he did read Egyptian. Quite possibly. Um, And this is actually also a rare occurrence of being able to tell a story about something that's well beyond Sam's lifetime. And thankfully, in this case, without Sam actually having to leap there, like in the leap between the states, um, because Sam himself even compares the study of ancient Egyptian artifacts to leaping back in time. Which I liked. It's a, it was a chance for him to talk about what he does without talking about it. Yeah. Um, it make, made me wonder, actually. Um, I mean, we know that Sam can read hieroglyphics. That was established way back even in um, the very second episode of the show, um, Star Crossed. So um, it was nice just being able to see him go leap, st- pun not intended, leap straight in and be able to read the hieroglyphics and know what's going on. And a nice use of continuity there. He also seems to know an awful lot about ancient Egypt, so it makes me think um, maybe he has a doctorate in either archaeology or Egyptology or anthropology or something like that. We don't actually know what all his doctorates are, so maybe one of them is in something like this. But why learn the language if you're not interested in the history? And knowing him, he can get a doctorate in the in one season or one semester. <laughs> Yeah, well, he had, what, seven of them, didn't he? I think at least. I thought Al should have uh, cosplayed. Once he found out they were in Egypt, he should have went in his closet and got that Egyptian robe with the hieroglyphics on it. Yeah, that would have been nice to see. Let's see if we can remember the doctorates he actually has. There's, well, obviously quantum physics. He's a medical doctor. Or what else is there? Ancient languages. uh, Music. Um, We know he's not a lawyer, and we know he's not um, a psychiatrist, but uh, yeah, I can only think of four out of his seven, so I think archaeology might definitely be up there. I would say, since he was so interested and it was a boyhood dream, I would would assume yes. Yeah, no, that's really good. Um, Now, as always, in an episode that has some sort of supernatural theme, the supernatural identity proves to be real, Tahotep coming back to life and walking the earth, killing those who disturb him. This seems to follow a pattern in Quantum Leap. Every time they do have something supernatural, it proves to be real, even though Sam is sceptical about it in the beginning. Um, We get confirmation of the existence of mummies, ghosts, angels, the devil, vampires, Bigfoot and UFOs, and in the expanded universe, also confirmed existence of aliens and the Loch Ness Monster. And I'm sure there are more. Surprisingly, though, the, super, um, the supernatural entity that viewers are most likely to believe in themselves, God, 
is the only one that's implied to not exist. <laughs> I'll talk more about that when we talk about Blood Moon. Yeah, well, and uh, Mirror Image too, I guess. <laughs> Whether or not that was real or completely in Sam's head. Yeah. Mm. It is nice that they do have a formula that, that they follow, but it's also always somewhat jarring when they juxtapose this against a sceptical scientist who comes up with a logical explanation for everything. It's like he is able to explain away everything and then all of that amounts to nothing. Mm. Um, but having said that, though, this particular episode is one where logic just does seem to fly out the window because most of the time all Sam can do is state that it's coincidence, all the events that are going on. And there's no like reset like in the other Halloween episode to where yeah. all this stuff happened in his head, so it's explainable, kind of like a musical. Yeah, although we know it wasn't in his head. Uh, Chris Rupenthal told us it actually happened. Right. Um, speaking of, Chris Rupenthal wrote this episode, and it was directed by Joe Napolitano. Do you think it's a, a good one or a bad one on their list? Or do you think Chris and Joe are proud of this one or not so much? Well, it's always one that Chris seems to want to talk about. I think Chris is proud of it. I mean, how often can you write something about an ancient Egyptian um, pharaoh's tomb and have them build it and actually see it come to life? It looks amazing, even though it does mm. look very fake. <laughs> hey, they did better than I could have, I'm sure. Oh, well, that's it. Um, something Chris Ruffenthal always seems to talk about, too, is um, like the little inside jokes they did uh, when they built this set. Apparently, there are like um, some of the... Egyptian people on the walls are smoking cigarettes and mm -hmm. apparently there's a hockey puck on the wall somewhere and apparently a Bart Simpson. I have been looking, but I've only got DVDs and it's very hard to see anything properly on them. Maybe you can oh do a better goodness. job. <laughs> Get so, the Blu-rays, my friend. Yeah, I will have to at some point. <laughs> yes, I, I, I did it one day. I just had to do it and I did it. Yeah. Well, the good yeah. thing is with my DVDs, though... Um, because they're Region 4, they already had the original music. So, um, oh, nice. Yeah, so I was always happy with what I had to start with. Uh, maybe at some point I'll upgrade, but I don't see any reason to just yet. Although this is a pretty good reason. So. Yeah. <laughs> I think Chris wrote a great episode I because the writing in the episode is really good. The, the acting is really good. I think the only problem that people really might have with the episode if they did is just because it is kind of a supernatural episode and for the most part quantum leap is not supernatural e yeah well having said that though it does feel out of place when sam and al are at each other's throats too so i i don't yeah. know maybe he was going through something at the time and just wanted to express like a passive-aggressive fight he was having with someone. I don't know. Uh, but, yeah, I did think that that felt out of place as well. But I still really enjoy it. So You think that might have been because uh, conflict creates drama and there wasn't really an antagonist in this episode other than the curse? Well, that's true too, yeah. And also, this episode seemed very confined as well. I mean, I know they would have had to spend a lot to get the set the way looking the way it did. But they never went any further than the campsite, so, and they didn't really change any of their clothes or anything like that, so I think they must have blown the budget <laughs> on the set. Mm -hmm. I, I, would, I would say this was a bottle show. Yeah. It, it took place in two sets. Pretty much, yeah. And uh, it could have been a play. Yeah. But I, I enjoyed it. I think director Joe Napolitano did a great job on this. The camera shots were nice. Nothing seemed out of place. 
The one thing I did notice is uh, they had one side of the tent, Sam's tent, removed so they could do a shot across the from the outside to the inside of the tent, and you actually saw the side of the wall as it went by. It reminded me of like shots from uh, 1931 Frankenstein, that kind of thing. So maybe he had the Universal monster movies on his mind when he was setting up shots for this. Yeah, most likely. Yeah, but uh, no, I quite like the episode. It's a lot of fun. Definitely something to mm-hmm. pull out if you're in a uh, a mood to be creeped out, if you get creeped out by TV. and um, <laughs> Creeped out by creepy music and long shots of statues. Yeah. Cat statues. And a big green hand. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do that in one of my upcoming uh, YouTube videos, just for no reason cut to a cat statue <laughs> with creepy music. And, and see if it works. It might work. People might get creeped out well, on the might. next uh, Cooking with Serenity. You never know. Yeah. Either that or get uh, Judgy Joy Stockwell from uh, What Price Glory and have a go, uh, 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 every, <laughs> every time you do something. <laughs> I've had that in my head since Allison suggested it uh, at a few episodes ago. <laughs> That's funny. Uh, so, so you're a skeptic. I'm a skeptic. We're just believers in logic and reason. Yes. So, in my head canon, what happened at the end? It wasn't a curse. Still, it was another weird coincidence, happenstance, which is possible. You can have ten coincidences happen in a row, and it just still be coincidences. And uh, I think what lets me watch it, knowing that there's no such thing as curses. And uh, mummies that come back to life because I think mummies, they were, you know, they were thinking in the future and they said, you know, someday we can be brought back to life through cloning. And the best way to preserve our DNA is to dry us out and do this other thing. So they would have DNA to be able to regrow us one day. And I think that's what they were talking about coming back to life. But that's me. But at the end, when Razul was trapped in the burial chamber and it closed behind him, he said, how do I get out? What do I do? Because he knew that to set the trap, you you pull the, what was it, heart out of the hands? Yeah. So I think he did that. And once the door started closing and he was trapped in there, he frantically tried to put it back in his hands. And he might have put it back in the mummy's hands, Tahotep's hands, like literal hands and not those like uh, metal hands that clasp the jewel. And then, you know, it's a mummy. So his hand came off. He threw it up in the air because he's scared of mummy hands. And he turned around. It landed on his back as he's trying to escape the door. And that's when we see the shot of the hand coming down his back. <laughs> that's the, that's my head cannon for the scientific explanation of this is not a supernatural episode. <laughs> Change my mind. Um, well, we have an eyewitness report of what actually happened. Yeah, he might have been influenced by his uh, creepy being creeped out. And the, the creepy music and the cat statues. <laughs> when uh, he said he's killing them, it might have been the third helper that didn't get crushed by the car or killed by the scorpions. So you think there was an extra person in the... So Yeah, there was another guy in the team that was helping Indy and uh, his friend. <laughs> this this was a very Indiana Jones like episode. Yeah, uh, he even took the stick to uh, get through the wall. I thought he was going to hold it up, and light was going to shine through it. <laughs> uh, whatever you're drinking, Albie, I want some. It's called Left Hook. Yeah, um, I think that about wraps it up for 
The Curse of Tahotep. I don't want to do too much of it, so when the A-Team covers it, it's not redundant. Yeah. No, I think we've had a good time watching and talking about uh, Tahotep, and we're going to go and have a little bit of a break. And when we return, I am going to suck your blood. Okay, that's great. Uh, Hayden, This uh, I'm going to run to the bathroom because, okay. you know, I have diabetes, so i got to pee all the time. Okay. So as long as you cut this part out, um, we're good. And uh, I'll be back. All right. <laughs> Michael Rennie was ill the day the earth stood still But he told us where we stand And Flash Gordon was there in silver underwear Lord Reigns was the invisible man. Then something went wrong for Fay Ray and King Kong. They got caught in a celluloid jam. Then at a deadly pace, it came from outer space. And this is how the message ran. Double feature Doctor Ace will build a creature. The androids fighting Red and Janet and Francis stars in Forbidden Planet. Oh, at the late night double feature picture show. I know the OG Carol was over a barrel when Tarantula took to the hills. And I really got hot when I saw Janet Scott fight a Triffid that spits poison and kills. Dana Andrews said prunes gave him the runes and passing them lots of skill But when worlds collide, said George Powell to his bride I'm gonna give you some terrible thrills Like a science fiction Double feature
the curse of Tutankhamun? <laughs> you have to queue up for ages. <laughs> the one that's going to lose me another ten points yes. is that, that anybody interfering with his tomb would be forever cursed. So the mere fact of... Yeah, you see, death to all who enter here. The fact is there is no curse, there never was. There's no inscription that even comes close to being a curse of Tutankhamun or of any Egyptian tomb ever. It looks like Tiger Woods eating a cornetto. Um, Lord Carnarvon, who uh, oh, that's the one. was one of the people with Howard Carter who first uncovered or excavated the tomb, died very, very soon afterwards from a shaving accident, probably an infected mosquito bite that he cut. And people thought, oh, it's cursed. There was one of the party that had excavated who died in about 1978, aged 93, and the headline was, Curse of Tutankhamun Strikes Again. <laughs> Jane Loudon Webb wrote a novel called The Mummy in 1828 about a mummy coming to life and chasing those who had uh, desecrated its tomb. But the fact is that thorough research has shown that only six died within the first decade of the opening and Howard Carter, surely the number one target as the chief of it, uh, lived for another 17 years. None of these superstitions should be worried about. Touchwood. Dave! <laughs> You're an educator first, but also a disciplinarian and a humanitarian. You need the energy of youth and the wisdom of age. You have to be a mediator and above all, a friend. The more you think about the roles our teachers must play, the more you know they deserve our applause. Thanks for that, Scott. I couldn't agree with you more. Hey, Leapers, it's Hayden McQueenie here. Um, I'm actually a teacher. Uh, I teach mathematics. I'm an experienced tutor as well. I'm currently teaching engineering maths at RMIT University and doing a lot of private tutoring as well. I've recently started tutoring online. So if anybody in any year level, so primary, secondary or tertiary, needs any assistance with their mathematics, by all means, send me an email. Uh, my email is Hayden, H-A-Y-D-E-N, dot McQueenie, M-C-Q-U-E-N-I-E, at R-M-I-T dot E-D-U dot A-U. If you want to know a little bit about my qualifications, I have a Bachelor of Applied Science in Mathematics. I also have a Diploma of Education and a Master of Education. I've been teaching in secondary and tertiary schools for many years. 
and I'm also the numeracy curriculum developer at the Technology Institute of Victoria, as well as a five-time presenter at the Mathematical Association of Victoria Conference. So I'm pretty sure I can help you out with your maths. Send me an email and we'll discuss how I can help you out. So once again, that email is Hayden, H-A-Y-D-E-N dot McQueenie, M-C-Q-U-E-E-N-I-E at rmit.edu.au. I look forward to hearing from you. The QLP is brought to you by listeners like you. Please go to patreon.com slash quantum leap podcast and give as much as you can. For as little as a dollar a month, you can be a contributor to the quantum leap podcast. It goes to covering our server cost and helps keep the podcast going. Thank you. So you went a little bit Sesame Street there, Albie. <laughs> so hello, listeners. We're obviously back. And this episode has been brought to you by the letters Q, L, and P. And by the number E. <laughs> Only mathematicians will find that funny. <laughs> I'm not yeah. a mathematician. And this science fiction double feature, we hope everyone enjoyed the intermission. And we're back and we're going to get into some much deeper thought, such as, if <laughs> contains more life than blood, then why don't vampires... <laughs> oh, man. But then again, and say what you want about Blood Moon, it's still a better love story than Twilight. My ears, uh, I'm not hearing the hand link. Uh, hopefully it, the hand link will be in there at, after we, after this. Oh my goodness. <laughs> we, we have to give it a workout. I never watched Twilight. Yeah, well, let's just say if you ever did, you need the Neuralizer from Men in Black. All right, I might have done that, so maybe I have watched it. I don't know. I thought Kristen Stewart was cute because she seemed, like, depressed, so I don't know. I, I, I find I find that attractive. That's just her range of acting. Oh, okay. Just she was good in that um, theme park movie. What was that called? Like, Funland or something? I don't know. I tend to not watch anything with her in it now. Okay. Although I did see something with her in it by accident, which I did like. It was... Oh, I can't even remember the name of it, but it was about a woman who was middle-aged and she was going through Alzheimer's, and Kristen Stewart was one of the daughters. That movie was actually quite good. I can't for the life of me remember its name, though. Uh, I know everything. Did you know that? Well, you've got a hand linked to Ziggy, so I'm not surprised. I do. Was it called New Moon or Breaking Dawn? No, wait. Charlie's Angels? No. Lizzie? Personal Shopper? Yeah, I think you're just Googling and not doing a very good job of it. <laughs> no, the the Runaways. In, into the Wild. I don't want to think about Kristen Stewart. <laughs> now I can't get her out of my mind. It's like, don't think of a pink elephant, and that's all you can think of is a pink elephant. Well, at least I've distracted you from Blood Moon. Oh, that's right. Which uh, I think quite a few people will need. <laughs> Adventureland. Yeah, no, you're still not on it. Oh, okay. Yeah, so we were talking about Blood Moon, weren't we? Hayden, could you uh, let me know a little bit more about this episode? Do you really want to? <laughs> yes, I do. <laughs> oh, I had to watch it so many times to write this recap. All right, I'll, I'll, I'll play it for you. Okay. <laughs> Season 5, Episode 14, Blood Moon. Leap date, March the 10th, 1975. Original broadcast date, February 9th, 1993. Written by Tommy Thompson, directed by Alan J. Levi.
After five years of leaping, Sam could probably do with some rest. But not eternal rest. In quite possibly the creepiest scenario Sam has leapt to, he finds himself inside a closed coffin. Sam immediately freaks, and like any sane person would do in that situation, tries to escape. Thankfully, the coffin has not been sealed and buried, and when Sam removes the lid, finds it is actually the centrepiece of a bedroom. A beautiful young blonde woman in old-fashioned clothes asks in an English accent if he slept well. Oh boy. Sam finds himself in a very old-fashioned gothic castle. The woman, who is the Leapy's wife, Alexandra, looks out a window and excitedly talks about the coming blood moon, expressing her gratitude to Sam for his love and stating that she intends to return his love at the ceremony. A creepy butler lights a torch and asks Sam, the master, if he would like to inspect the livestock, which Alexandra explains are sheep she brought up from the village for the ceremony. Sam is barked at by the Lee P's dog, a vicious-looking Doberman named Vlad, it realising Sam is not its master. So Alexandra takes Vlad away. Sam is thoroughly confused and freaked out by this leap and tries desperately to get some answers from Horace, the butler but is completely ignored. To add to the creepiness, a huge cloud of smoke appears through the wall. Thankfully, this is just Al's cigar smoke. Al turns back to talk to Sam and is immediately startled by the gothic architecture and decoration. Having scared each other, Sam is first to calm down and tries to get some information from Al. Al, however, is thoroughly panicked and terrified, having visited Sam's host in the waiting room And from his appearance, a cross between Bella Lugosi and a sick corpse, reached the conclusion that Sam has leapt into a vampire. Apparently the Lee P, with his pale complexion, beady eyes and lustful stare, gives him all the markings of the undead. Sam loses it, saying that Al just described himself and has all the markings of the brain dead. Sam wonders how Al would have reacted if he had arrived a few minutes earlier when Sam was in the coffin. And he finds out. Al does manage to give Sam some information, though. It's March the 10th, 1975, which disproves Sam's theory that it must be Halloween, and he is just outside London. Sam is in the aura of Nigel Corrington, an eccentric artist who shocked the art world by marrying a homeless girl. They don't yet know why Sam has leapt there, Al having been preoccupied with the vampire in the waiting room. Sam is flabbergasted, tries to get Al to admit there is no such thing as vampires, and sends Al away to find out what he is there to do on this leap. Sam and Alexandra admire a portrait of Nigel Corrington's ancestor, who built the castle 300 years earlier. Two guests, Victor Drake and his girlfriend Claudia, who are joining them for the Blood Moon ceremony, arrive. Victor is immediately smitten with Alexandra. Al returns, this time wearing a cross and a clove of garlic around his neck. Al tells Sam that he is there to solve a murder. Alexandra's dead body is found in two days, completely drained of blood. Al is adamant that this is the work of vampires, while Sam thinks there must be a logical explanation. Though, the best way to explain leaping into a coffin is that it's a marketing ploy, Corrington living this bizarre lifestyle to sell more artwork. Sam tells Al to investigate both Victor and the Blood Moon. 
Sam and Al both think that this situation is cult behaviour, but doubt that Alexandra is a part of it, thinking that she actually does love Corrington and probably just wanted to become queen of her own castle. At dinner, Victor and Claudia spout vampire folklore in their toast. Victor continues to shamelessly flirt with Alexandra. Alexandra is titillated by the prospect of the ceremony, but frightened when they discuss the need for a sacrifice. Sam takes Alexandra to the kitchen to clear up the dishes, and Alexandra deduces that Sam does not want to go through with the ceremony, but reaches the wrong conclusion that it's because she's not worthy. She again expresses how much she loves Corrington, and recounts having been an orphan, abandoned at just a day old, having to grow up with 20 other lost souls, and then living on the streets, sure she would die alone, until she met Nigel. She begs Sam not to let her die alone. Victor interrupts, hoping to give Sam a gift. It is a silver dagger that belonged to Count Bathory. Sam doesn't think he can accept the gift, it being too expensive, but Victor insists. Alexandra excuses herself when it is clear that Victor and Claudia share a level of sexual deviance that not even Dr. Ruth could handle. They wish to go somewhere more excluded to prepare for the ceremony, and Claudia offers herself to Sam, but he refuses and simply offers for Horace to take them to their rooms upstairs. But Victor has dismissed Horace for the evening. Al, who arrived with enough time to see their attempts at seduction, thinks this proves that Victor and Claudia are vampires. He shows Sam a book, How to Spot a Vampire by Laszlo Fang. He explains that vampires are sexual fiends, and that Blood Moon is a ceremony to honour Count Bathory a vampire who was responsible for the deaths of 650 virgins, believing that consuming their blood would give him eternal life. Bathory was eventually captured and forced to live on his own blood. When he finally did die, the moon turned blood red. Since then, every blood moon, vampires must offer a sacrifice to him. Sam is thoroughly frustrated by this leap, not even able to find out what he looks like. Al says that the man in the portrait is the Lee P, and upon being told that the painting is over 300 years old, says that this is proof that Corrington is a vampire. Sam tries to prove that he's not, by taking Al to the family mausoleum and attempting to show him the bones of the ancestor who is in the painting. Sam is interrupted before he can open the coffin, though, by a blood-curdling scream from Alexandra. She is okay, but Vlad the Doberman is not. His throat has been slit. Sam decides to cancel the ceremony. Alexandra expresses her want to run away, but how she feels trapped by being so drawn to Corrington. They inform Victor and Claudia that the ritual will be called off. Victor asks for one last toast before they leave. Sam and Alexandra drink, while Victor and Claudia conspicuously do not, seeing as they've drugged the wine. Both Sam and Alexandra collapse, and Victor states that the Count will be pleased, as they will be giving him two offerings. When Sam comes to, he's tied to a table, and Victor tells him that he'll wish he'd stayed knocked out. Sam tries to convince Claudia to untie him, but she undoes Sam's top button and reveals she has vampire fangs. Al desperately tries to repel her with his cross and garlic, but as she's about to bite Sam, she's knocked out by Horace, who had returned for his hat. Al can't locate Alexandra due to the lightning, so centres on her instead. 
Sam checks on Claudia and discovers that her vampire fangs are fake. Alice found Alexandra staked up on the roof, with Victor about to kill her. Sam tells Victor to release her, but Victor's strike is thwarted by another strike, a lightning strike, the silver dagger having worked like a lightning rod. Sam and Alexandra give reports to the police, and since their stories match, the policeman sees no reason to arrest either of them. Sam tells Al that he doesn't think Alexandra should be left around Corrington when the mentally unstable Corrington leaps back. Sam tells Alexandra that she needs to leave for her own safety and gives her some priceless relics she can sell to support herself. He tells her to get as far away as possible. She's heartbroken and says she doesn't think she'll ever understand what happened that night. Again expresses that she'll love him for all eternity, then leaves. Al reveals that Alexandra is fine. She ends up on the street again, but as a missionary. Sam rubs Al's nose in it for how carried away he got. Sam notices that a drink had been brought to him on a silver platter and tries to finally see what he looks like in the reflection. But he's not reflecting. Realising that Corrington actually is a vampire, Sam leaps. This is a weird episode. Certainly is. Does it deserve all the crap that people give it as being the worst episode of Quantum Leap ever? Yes. I do think it does deserve that title, even though I was debating that myself before we started. It does have some redeeming features, but those redeeming features I've even seen before in other episodes. So I think it does deserve that title, but... Having said that, I think it's still watchable. I, I enjoyed watching it. That's not, probably not a surprise. I love Quantum Leap, and I always enjoy most every episode. And one of my favorite writers, if not my favorite television writer, is Tommy Thompson. And he wrote this episode, so that's why I never understood a Tommy Thompson episode, how it could be viewed as the worst. But I heard Tommy when he was on um, the QLP with Allison, Chris and Matt, and he was even given this episode crap himself. Yeah. Well, look, even in the writing, I could see a lot of problems in it. I'm sure we'll get into talking about that soon enough, but uh, yeah, look, even Tommy was saying he was going through something at the time, which was affecting his ability to write. So I think we can forgive him for having a thought-provoking episode, let's just say. <laughs> Absolutely. We all go through stuff. Look, uh, Quantum Leap Podcast took a couple years off because I went through some stuff. Yeah. And having said that, it's great having you back. Just oh, uh, thank you. We've all forgotten. A new beginning. I think I might have said that earlier in the show. Yeah. Well, I appreciate it. It's, it's a new beginning. Yeah, and speaking of new beginnings, new theme song. No, no, no! It's it's the one that goes. That one uh, played on a Casio keyboard, I believe. Uh, possibly, I don't know. Um, but yeah, it just. I haven't watched season five in a while, so it surprised me when I put the DVD in and it went to the menu and blurred the Rocky version of the theme song, and <laughs> just surprised me. I had the same feeling because, like, I think we just tend to uh, put that out of our heads and forget about it intentionally. And it's always a surprise when you hear that version. And you're like, what were they thinking? 
Yeah. Well, I actually like it. I think it's a good theme song. I think it's just we're so used to the other one. It might be. It might be. Although something weird that I did notice mm-hmm. was even in this episode, Mike Post is still credited with writing the theme song, even though this one was Velt and Ray Bunch. Well, it's basically a cover, right? It's like one of those where you you want to hear the theme song to your favorite TV show, but Alexa plays the wrong one, and it's something like that. Yeah, I think because it's somewhat of an adaption of the original one, they still have to credit him originally, but it just kind of sticks out like a sore thumb. All right, we're talking about Blood Moon. Coincidentally, on this side of the globe, and it is a globe, people that think it's not, and, uh, and Hayden is an actor paid to talk to me, I don't have that kind of money, so Australia must be real. Well, look, I guess the secret is out, so I don't think I'm going to avoid any non-disclosure agreements if I do talk about my acting career. <laughs> This accent is not easy to put on, by the way. I have to try and make sure that I speak with my mouth closed most of the time. I could be a ventriloquist. Yeah, on this side of the globe, there's a full moon tonight. It's October 25th, 2018, Common Era. You've just dated the show? I did. I did. Okay, so for those listening at home, we are not recording live, so that's why we can say pretty much what we want. (laughs) Hand link to be inserted later. Yeah, pretty much. Unless we get really lazy and think it's hilarious and then we won't yeah, do it. Set up, set up a separate feed, a raw feed. <laughs> yeah, I think we'll have to release a director's cut which doesn't have any of the editing on it. Hmm. If we get to $30 a month on the Patreon, there will be an unedited version of every show. Did you know that? Awesome. Yeah. That's our break-even point, $30 a month. That's why. I see. Mm. I see. All right. Well, something that is interesting about Blood Moon is that um, the leap in that we see at the start of this episode with Sam waking up in the coffin actually isn't seen in the episode beforehand. Dr. Ruth, which was the episode beforehand, uh, has a very unique ending because we see the ending from the waiting room. And Dr. Ruth has just finished counselling Al and uh, she stands up and says, next! And we see Dr. Ruth leap back. And yeah, we see Corrington leap in and immediately bearing his fangs. So that kind of spoilt the ending of the episode, didn't it? A little bit. A little bit. Yeah. I wonder if it was kind of intentional having that sort of uh, teaser for this episode to try and bring people in, thinking, oh, Sam's a vampire, instead of they'd just shown him leap into the coffin. They might have just thought that he was a whack job. Right. It might be one of those things where, ooh, he's going to be a vampire, like you said, versus just in a coffin. It could be anything, really. Mm. And and they are known yeah. for misleads here and there. Oh, definitely. But yeah, one word for this episode, though, bizarre. It's just a really weird episode, isn't it? It is a weird episode. And I think the reason that so many people give this episode so much grief is... The way they're viewing it, because it's a really good episode, very well written, as long as you understand. Uh, okay, fo- well, follow me with really this. really not. <laughs> no, wait, follow me on this. I might be able to change your mind, okay? Because Tommy Thompson is a genius. He's a great writer. Now, if you l- approach this episode and watch it from the fact that Sam is a va- leaped into a vampire, this uh, homeless woman that he married uh, wants to be a vampire, and these two people that are visiting for dinner are vampires, yeah, it's a wacky, crazy, silly episode. But here's the thing. 
I think that obviously the vampire couple that come to visit, they're not vampires. They have fake teeth to put in. They think they're vampires. So I think they're mentally ill. They killed a dog and they're about to kill Alexandria. And so they're obviously one of those crazy people that, you know, had the internet been around, they'd be meeting on the internet and trying to find people to eat later. So if you view the episode from what you learn towards the end of the episode, that these are just sad and insane people that are pretending or think they are actually vampires when they're not, then it's actually kind of an interesting episode because there's real jeopardy because Alexandria is almost killed and she's killed by two crazy people. And whether or not they think they're vampires or they're religious or they're cannibals or whatever the sickness is in their brain, they're actually cold-blooded murderers planning to kill this woman and Sam saves the day. So I don't think it's a silly episode because it's not a vampire episode. It's an episode about mentally ill killers. I have to disagree with quite a lot of what you said there. Okay. Do you actually think Alexandra wanted to be a vampire? I think Alexandria thought that Corrington was a real vampire, and I think the blood moon ceremony, she was thinking she was going to become a vampire. That was my take on it. Yeah, see, I always just thought, I mean, obviously Alexandra, if she's got any kind of sense, would see that Corrington is just some eccentric or possibly mentally ill person, and she probably just thought, well, this is my way to get off the streets, so I'll just play along and do do his rituals and play along with him, and it'll keep me off the streets, and I'm safe, or safer. So I don't think Alexandria ever wanted to actually be a vampire. I think she just saw it as her way out of her previous life on the streets. The other thing, you were saying that it was um, very entertaining with these mentally ill people. And I'm not disputing that they're mentally ill, but definitely not entertaining when you've got scene after scene of just Victor and Claudia spouting all this vampire folklore stuff it just went on and on and on. You could have removed the scene where they give Sam the dagger and not have it affect the episode at all. Mm. I mean, except for the fact that the dagger was the murder weapon. But, I mean, they don't actually have to establish what the murder weapon is. It'll be pretty obvious what it is in the scene where Victor's actually trying to kill Alexandria anyway. So, there's that. So, I was just getting more and more bored with Victor and Claudia. And... The other problem with the writing is that Sam is completely useless in this episode. He doesn't actually do anything to affect the outcome. It's Lurch. I'm saying that because I can't remember the name of the uh, the name of the butler. But Boris. It's Lurch. Yeah. Well, I'm going to call him Lurch because okay. it's easier to remember. <laughs> it's Lurch who saves Sam from Claudia, and Sam doesn't actually do anything to stop Victor either. It's the lightning, and that's just some freak occurrence. So it really made me think that the writing in this episode was actually a lot sloppier than in Tommy's much better works. It just seemed to me like he was having trouble finding a resolution to the episode without reducing the drama. So he's just like, oh, well, we'll have the lightning kill him or something or like that. Or is it? Or is it? Sam failed in his mission, and... GTFW sent a lightning strike to take care of it for him. I agree that's possible, but uh, I <laughs> tend to prefer having Sam be the one to resolve the episode and not some freak occurrence. Yeah. Well, you know me. I'll defend Tommy's writing till the end. And I'm staying objective. 
I'm a fan. One thing about this episode, I don't care who you are, but if you invite somebody over your house, there's two extra people in your house. Yes, he has uh, Boris the butler, but there's, and his wife, but the two people come over and somebody kills your dog. You know, it's not your wife. You know, it's not your butler. You know, it's one of those two people. Why does he not say, get the hell out of my house right now? You killed my dog. Yeah, that's just weird. I mean, I know that they're all kind of fixated on this blood moon ceremony. And I guess the only thing going through Sam's mind is that he has to try and prevent the murder. So he wants to actually know what's going to happen. But I mean, the entire resolution of the episode, which was to give Alexandra some priceless artifacts so she can sell them and set herself up for life, that could have been done in five minutes. And all he had to do was send the nuts home and get Alexandra out of the house and out of his life, and then he's done. Sam could have leapt straight away. So, look, uh, it was just Mm. stretching out a boring story, apart from a lot of humour which comes from Al, and Al is really the only saving grace in this episode. But it's a boring story dragged out over a long period of time with a resolution that's rushed, which has nothing to do with Sam at all, and then the resolution to the episode being something that could have been done in the first five minutes, and then a surprise ending, which isn't even a surprise because it was spoiled in the earlier episode. So... Yeah, I don't have very much nice to say about this episode. Having said that, every episode of Quantum Leap has good parts to it, including Blood Moon. And like I was saying, it's really Al which is the saving Mm. grace of this episode. His interactions with Sam when they're discussing the vampire folklore and him getting more and more scared, and Sam just teasing him, you know, he's got all the markings of the undead. And you've got all the markings of the brain dead. <laughs> you know, that that sort of thing. And there was another one. Vampires and holograms <laughs> must have a lot in common after Al was talking about uh, vampires being sex pests. Yeah, so Al was the only saving grace of this episode. <laughs> I actually also really liked his initial entrance in the episode where we actually see his cigar smoke come through the wall first. And then, yeah, it actually added to the creepy vibe of the episode. That was so. cool. I thought that was cool. And we actually did see some other cool holographic effects, like uh, when he has the book and then he puts it down on the table that's in the imaging chamber, which we can't see. And after he lets it go, it disappears. So they've obviously got uh, Mm. what happens in the imaging chamber down pat now. They could have done that so much better today with a home computer. It's just, you know, because once he let it go, it... They didn't have to freeze everything and jump cut. They could have just covered that with a blank pass, you know, a blank shot. Well, look, I think it still worked out quite well. Speaking of Victor and Claudia, though, did you get a uh, swingers vibe from them? Absolutely. There was there was a swinger slash crazy slash polyamorous. Not that all those things go together. They don't. They're separate. But that's the that's the feeling I got from them. But I think that goes with the whole thinking you're a vampire lifestyle. Yeah. Well, look, with Victor and Claudia, all I could think about with them was that sooner or later, they're going to be passing around the bowl with everyone's keys in it. So... <laughs> <laughs> But I think that was the only saving grace about Victor and Claudia, and that was their kind of sexual vibe that they were passing. Other than that, they were boring as can be. Well, I think you brought up the main sticky point of the episode, which is it's 
Corrington's house. It's his castle. So he could have asked them to leave at any time and problem solved. Yeah. But there's so many stories and so many episodes of television, so many movies that have a two minute resolution, but you just have to put that out of your mind to enjoy the story. Yeah. And maybe that's one reason why I couldn't enjoy the story. And some of it too was very predictable. Like you said, eventually Sam does tell them they've got to leave. And so they propose another toast before they leave. You just have to look at them and see that they're not drinking the wine. And then you know that it's poisoned. And of course, Sam and Alexandria drink theirs. And that's kind of what pushes the story forward with them being attacked by Victor and Claudia. I suppose it's a way to drive the story along, but... The story was that wafer thin to begin with and that predictable. It's inconceivable. Well, that's the thing. It, it is conceivable. I could write it myself <laughs> and that's not, that's not a compliment. <laughs> that was a Princess Bride reference. Uh, okay. Of the switching the drinks. Anyway, yeah, I, I don't know about you, but I won't drink anything that everybody drinks before other people drink it, especially the people who poured it. I don't know if it's because I've seen one too many movies or, or I just I'm untrusting by nature. But that was another uh, because show, as Chris would say. Yeah, and more because show stuff. I mean, we know in an episode where there's some kind of a supernatural theme, Al's always got to be the one that believes it and gets freaked out by it, and Sam's always got to be the one to try and come up with the logical explanation. But even his logical explanations were clutching at straws now. The best he could come up with was that it was a marketing ploy as to why he woke up in the coffin, thinking that Corrington has to live this bizarre lifestyle in order to be able to pass on this persona and sell his artwork. And I'm just thinking, yeah, you're clutching at straws now. I mean, he could have just said, well, it's obvious that this guy is completely and utterly insane, and that's why he was doing such stupid things. I think we could kind of tell we were leading towards the end of the series with this one. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well, yeah, well, between the theme song and the visual effects, Al coming out of the wall after the smoke, the smoke looked cool, but he was definitely interlaced when the whole rest of the frame is progressive. So he's just like a bunch of lines, which could be a hologram thing. So I'll take it. But you can tell they did the video special effects instead of the film optical effects. But uh, what you were saying, I think, is true. That's one of the things that I liked about the episode was that Sam understood Corrington was crazy as well. That's why he sent Alexandria away. Yeah. So this wouldn't happen again after he leaped out. Yeah, that's true. This episode actually is very similar to The Curse of Tahotep in one respect, apart from the obvious so-called surprise ending, but that is that this is another case of the writer seemingly wanting to tell a story from the distant past, but having to somehow get it within Sam's lifetime. Hmm. Did you notice that? Yeah, because it could have taken place in, what, 1700, Yeah, you know, and Mary Shelley could have been there, but they put it in uh, the 70s. I think it was a couple months old when this episode takes place. You know, something that stuck out at me was, all right, the story itself is wafer thin, but actually the sets and the costumes were very intricate. They looked really expensive and very well made and very well placed. It kind of surprised me that they'd go into such detail with this episode because we know how much this budget had been stretched in the fifth season. Why would they be chucking so much money on this episode when 
you know, it's probably the worst of the entire series. <laughs> well, you never know you're making the worst episode of the series. You, you always try your best and hope for the best, and then one of them eventually is going to be, you know, uh, Blood Moon or Masks. <laughs> well, maybe they wanted to chuck some money at it to try and get some people to stick around once they realized that the story wasn't worth watching. <laughs> I did notice the costuming. I thought it was really good. I, I liked the collars. I liked the different use of fabrics. On the Blu-ray, you can really tell that they used really interesting fabric. By this stage, the costume designer was Jacqueline St. Anne, and she did a great job. My favorite costume was Alexandra's. That dress was beautiful, and I loved the jewel that was on her chest. It was very nice, and uh, I thought it was funny that she said, this must have been your grandmother's, and I thought to myself... Uh, I never have I been turned on by a woman in my grandmother's clothing. And it's funny to you say that because I actually had a couple of thoughts about Corrington himself. To start with, since we know that Corrington actually is a vampire and undead and is going to live forever, how long had he been a vampire for? I mean, we get told by Al that the portrait, which is supposedly Corrington's however many times great-grandfather, looks exactly like him. What's the bet that it actually is a portrait of Corrington and that Corrington is the one who built the castle originally and has just stayed alive for all this time? So you're thinking this is a supernatural episode? Well, we know it is for sure because, you know, he doesn't have a reflection. He must be a vampire. I might have an answer for that later, but okay. if he thinks he's a vampire, but he's not a vampire. But he is uh, a vampire. One of the ways, okay. <laughs> one of the ways to convince your new wife that you are a vampire is to get a portrait of yourself and tell her, or he's a painter, right? Or And tell her that that's my great-grandfather or that's my grandfather, and then have her surmise that it's actually him being a vampire when he's just a normal dude that's kind of crazy. Mm. It's an interesting theory. I don't think it holds a lot of water, but it's an interesting theory. <laughs> yeah, I just thought, well, the portrait's obviously of Corrington, and mm-hmm. I just thought, well, Corrington maybe actually is as old as they said that painting was and that he was the one who originally built the castle. And the other thing I wondered about was Al was saying that the Blood Moon ritual is something that's necessary for all vampires to do. So Corrington actually didn't do it while he was in the waiting room, and it didn't actually take place even with Sam as the proxy. So what will happen to Corrington if he can't do his rituals? Hmm. I never thought of that. Does that mean that when he leaps back, he's going to start dying because he hasn't been able to do the ritual? Who knows? Who knows? I, see, this is uh, new in vampire lore, right? I've never heard of it anywhere else. Well, I don't, I don't think it actually does exist. In the Quantum Leap universe, it does. So don't these people that leap into the waiting room, don't they get like a physical checkup and all that stuff? So they would know he'd have a beating heart or not? Well, Al has obviously seen him and talked to him, uh, but I don't know if anyone has actually gone and examined him they might have just been too freaked out who knows is it corrington's aura around sam's body or is it corrington's body there also well corrington's body is in the waiting room but that's surrounded by sam's aura oh okay so they would have been able to take his vitals and such yeah and Hmm. al's the only one i think who actually can see him as himself yeah so um, all right maybe dr beaks or whoever's doing the examination actually could do it Right. But if if they got that information, then episode over, it's not scary, he's not a vampire, or you mentioned it that he is a vampire because he doesn't have a heartbeat. 
Something we'll have to ask Tommy. <laughs> he said he's he said he's going to be on the QLP proper when they do this episode. So that's not for a while yet, but I'm I'm intrigued. Yeah, I am definitely interested to hear his thoughts. A TV trope which pops up a lot is Chekhov's gun. Have you ever heard of that? Yes, if you see a gun in the first act, it's going to be used later on in the play, correct? That's exactly it. All right. What was Chekhov's gun in this episode? The dagger? No. The lightning? No. Mm, The butler. The butler, yes. All right, because he was essentially sent home straight away, but obviously he's the one that out of the blue will save Sam. So, yeah, they can't do that unless he's established earlier on in the episode. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I like that. Yeah. I wrote a little note to myself, does silver conduct electricity? Because it's pretty obvious the dagger was made of silver. But uh, I looked it up and apparently silver is the best conductor of electricity of all known elements. So it actually Ah. does make perfect sense that it could be used as a lightning rod. One for Tommy Thompson right there. You know, I did recognize um, Boris, uh, played by Rod Loomis. He, I know, I know you're not a Trekkie yet. Hopefully one day you'll see the light. When I've got time. <laughs> he played Dr. Paul Mannheim in We'll Always Have Paris. So uh, if you were thinking that was him, that was him. Well, I wasn't, but uh, I will have to try and get an interview for you with him if he's still alive, because he looked pretty Yes, old. please. <laughs> then we can, we can talk about this episode for five minutes and then Star Trek for the other 45. <laughs> I'll put on my stalking boots and see what I can do. Thank you. You're very good at that. Good producer. These boots are made for stalking. <laughs> no singing. No singing in this episode. Oh, I told on. you that. I'll only do this episode if you don't sing in it, because like you can do it in the other in the other bonus shows, but just not this one. Fish gotta swim. Vampire bats gotta fly. We didn't have okay. any bats. I just realized that there was no bats in the episode. This was uh, to your earlier point. This was a bottle episode. Mm. They didn't spend a lot of money. They did spend some money on the costuming, but there was only a few characters, and most of I, I think the men's clothes looked not not Scots, but the other men's looked store bought, so they could be a, quite elaborate on uh, Quarrington and Alexandria's. And and the sets, there was, what, maybe two and a half sets? It looked like they had a fair few rooms in that castle that they went in, though. Yeah. One might have been a redress of another one or the French reverse and all that stuff. And there was the rooftop as well. Yeah, which, you know, looks like something that we could build if we had a couple weeks. (laughs) Oh, that should be a project for the Quantum Leap podcast. We should uh, recreate (laughs) some Quantum Leap sets. Only the sets from the worst episodes. (laughs) Well, this would definitely (laughs) qualify. (laughs) That would be good cosplay. What are you? I'm the outside porch from Blood Moon. Well, on Ellen, I think it was uh, Halloween of 2016, because it was just before Trump's election. She got a bunch of kids to wear some costumes and do a little parade, and one of them was wearing Trump's wall. Trump's wall? Trump's wall, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, don't remind me. uh, Just for the record, popular vote was Hillary. More people voted for Hillary than voted for that. Yeah, and this is why... First of all, you need compulsory voting. Agreed. So that, uh, you know, even if there are a, a choice between a dick and a t- you still <laughs> have the lesser of the two evils probably getting in. And also, you need preferential voting, which is what we also have here. Do you know what that is? No, I don't. What's that? Well, what you have in America is called first past the post. And that's where everyone just votes for one person or for one party. 
and then when the votes are counted, whoever has the most is the one that wins, all right? But that's actually quite unfair because it could be if there's a lot of candidates, the winner could win with, say, 30% of the vote, which is definitely not what 70% of the people actually want. With preferential voting, a person has to win by an absolute majority, which is 51%. And so when you vote, you have to do a ranking of all the candidates. And then what happens is all of them get counted for the first preferences. If anyone gets 51% of the first preferences, they win. If not, then the person or the candidate with the least number of first preferences is eliminated, and then those second preferences from those votes get counted. And then they repeat the process again. If one has 51%, they win. If not, they eliminate the lowest and redistribute those preferences. And then we get, you know, what at the very least 51% of the people don't want actually not getting in. That makes a lot of sense. And I, I the reason that won't ever happen here is because the people in control of the laws over here don't want that because they want the ability to screw with the election as easily as possible. If you are going to vote in America, you have to vote for one of the major parties. Make sure you do it, please. But in the rest of the world, you vote for what you ideologically agree with the most and you rank everything as to how you want. And then hopefully the complete bastards party won't get in. You might only get a partial bastards party. There you go. Continuing this tangent. I love tangents, by the way. People know that. Well, I'm a mathematician. I love tangents too. There you go. Uh, There's a lot of skewing in the tangents. I often go off in circular tangents, which means we end up back where we started. (laughs) (laughs) Tonight, I went to see Hunter Killer. I don't know if you're familiar with that movie. No, I've got no idea what that is. It's about a submarine and uh, almost the start of World War III. Okay. And uh, I'm not in the war movies, really, but I figured I'd go see it. Why not? It looked good. And uh, the whole time they were talking about, you know, going to the president and talking to the president, I'm like, how are they going to take a serious drama action movie like this seriously when they go to a president that's going to be orange with a wig on, you know? Mm. And I was like, there's no way that that's not going to, like, pull people out of the story. So how are they going to do that? But when they got to the president, it was an older woman that had blonde hair. So I was like, okay, that makes more sense. I think they must have started making this before the 2016 election. <laughs> Maybe, because I don't know. I'm still in shock, but uh, still in denial. It, it, it went right in most universes, just not this one. So we're talking about Blood Moon, right? Um, to me, I still like this episode. I won't say love it, because there's nothing really I'm in love with about this episode, but I like the episode. And uh, part of it for me is because it's a Tommy Thompson episode. And for me, a Tommy Thompson episode is like that saying, you know, like, the worst I ever had was still pretty good. <laughs> the The worst Tommy Thompson episode is still pretty good. So I'll, I'll, I'll still watch it. Yeah, well, look, like I say, there aren't any bad episodes of Quantum Leap. I obviously have my favourites, and there are some that are much worse than those, this being one of them. But like I said, every episode does have some saving features which makes it watchable. I talked about Al's reactions being extremely funny, and that definitely is a reason to watch. And something else that I've got in my notes here was uh, there was a scene where they were talking about some of the vampire folklore around the dinner table. And you can kind of see the wheels turning in Alexandra's head 
and she's starting to realize, oh my God, what am I getting into? And her eyes, they're massive and you can start seeing them glisten because these tears are showing up. And I just thought that that was such amazing acting, probably the only good acting from the episode, to be honest. There's definitely good features in the episode. It's just the episode as a whole isn't that good. <laughs> she was good in the episode, I thought. I, you know what? If this series would have went on seven, eight, nine seasons, it would have been nice to see her back, maybe in the United States. Uh, maybe that's where she went and uh, did some charity work, was it? Yeah, she became a missionary. Uh, it would have been nice to see her maybe be in that Christmas episode. Yeah. Well, what you say is a very good point, actually. There were so many opportunities from all these different circumstances that Sam had been in to have some sort of characters and situations spun off into their own shows. I mean, one that was tossed around for a long time is Captain Galaxy. Uh, what other ones can you think of that you might have wanted to see? Hmm. Wow, the world is so big. Mm. That's exactly yes. it. It's a huge universe and there's so much possibility. Something with Sam's sister, maybe. Well, that's an idea. Yeah. The one that I would actually like to see is, and this is partially because of my love for Jane Sabet, but Diane Frost becoming a bounty hunter. I reckon that she could have been an amazing asset to Project Quantum Leap if they brought her back for anything, because like we've kind of established, there are a lot of things that Ziggy cannot ever possibly know, even though somehow she manages to find them out. I think that a certain set of skills that Diane Frost has as a bounty hunter, she could have become a great private investigator and done some good stuff for the project. She would have been really good in like a Fall Guy type of TV series. Yeah. Maybe. Well, she could have been the dog before the dog came around. <laughs> But uh, that that's uh, one that I would have liked to have seen. But there there yeah, are so many other many so many other possibilities that we could come up with. Maybe our listeners could come up with some. In closing of Blood Moon, here's my one defense that this isn't a supernatural show. The only thing that we get that it's supernatural is what Sam leaps into a vampire and he's got teeth, right? In the in the other teaser, but he could be just wearing the the fake teeth of the other people, right? No, because prosthetics won't get transferred when they're late. Oh, damn it. <laughs> but he could have been wearing them anyway because he might have been in the group of the three of them that just wear fake teeth, right? Mm, why would the teeth leap with him, though? That's a good point. Why is his hair different when he leaps in to somebody else? But anyway, I'm thinking either Sam was uh, his Swiss cheese brain wouldn't let him hold the silver platter like at a 90 degree angle so he could see his reflection in it. So it was at a different angle, but he just didn't realize it. Or maybe Sam or the person he's in, depending on how you look at the whole aura versus body thing, maybe they had stereo blindness to where they couldn't actually see the depth perception in front of them to know that the platter was off kilter. And that's why he couldn't see his reflection. I do like your theories. I think that they can be disproved, but I do like them. <laughs> <laughs> or maybe it was just at a slightly different angle and he thought it was looking up, but the overhead light was reflecting in it instead. So he thought he was seeing the light behind him, but he was seeing the light from above him. Well, look, I'm glad you, did, I, I'm glad you didn't go into the whole idea of someone suffering from face blindness because that would have been ridiculous. <laughs> he couldn't recognize himself. <laughs> well, if, if anyone has uh, a reason to do that, it would be Sam. So was this the only episode that there wasn't a mirror actor in? No. In shock theater, we never see the mirror image as well. Okay. But we see okay. a lot of past mirror images in that episode. Okay. And interestingly, the person who played the Lee P 
we don't see the mirror image at all in this episode, but he was cast and appeared in Dr. Ruth. The person who was the mirror image, Robert McKenzie, only received credit in Dr. Ruth. Which makes sense. Yeah. Um, I would have thought because his likeness was in the portrait, they would have credited him for that as well, but uh, I guess not. But it's just kind of interesting that a mirror image, or at least a Lee P., considering we don't see the mirror image, would be credited in a different episode. Very interesting. I, it's, I guess it's what they had to do to get people to tune in, right? I guess so, yeah. I, I suppose it's definitely the only kind of Lee P that you could show immediately after a Lee P exits the waiting room that would make people tune in because anyone else is just a regular person, I guess. Unless it was something like mm. a baby or a dog or something like that. Cartoon character. Yeah. Well, they were going to do a cartoon episode, weren't they? I know. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, They still might. You never know. But since we were on the subject of possible spin-offs, maybe uh, some of our listeners might want to pipe in with some of theirs. Uh, You could do so by calling the country code, if you're international like I am, plus one, and then 707-847-6682. Or you could go on the Facebook page, Quantum Leap Podcast. You could go onto Twitter or onto Instagram at Quantum Leap Pod. We've got an email, quantumleappodcast at gmail.com. And you can use those ways to enter our latest giveaway. Oh, we got a giveaway. I'm keen. We do have a giveaway. The fine people at Mill Creek had sent us some Quantum Leap DVDs of the complete series. These are the new remastered ones for the uh, new DVD set, Region 1, that's in DVD format. So for all you lucky listeners that made it through The Curse of Tahotep and Blood Moon with me and Hayden here, you have the unique opportunity, this is not on the main show, of entering this little giveaway. All you have to do is be a little bit of an archaeologist yourself. If you are the first person to send us the complete MP3 for the Quantum Leap bonus episode, Lee Harvey Oswald, that was hosted by Skipper Martin and Christopher D. Philippus, send that to us in an email, quantumleappodcast at gmail.com. And you have a U.S. mailing address. And the only reason for that is because international shipping just kills me and we don't have a budget. (laughs) If you're not in the U.S. and you still have the MP3, send it on in and we'll thank you very much. But uh, the first person uh, with a U.S. mailing address to send us that MP3 of Lee Harvey Oswald will get Quantum Leap, the complete series, on DVD from Mill Creek. It's an 18-disc set, sealed, never been opened, brand new, and it's from good people at Mill Creek that made the DVDs and Blu-rays, and it's going to be in your mailbox. Awesome. So have you lost that episode in the move? We did. Our servers went down. Another reason why we're looking for $30 a month from our patrons is because uh, at one point a few months back, Everything disappeared, and everything you see now on the Quantum Leap podcast has been rebuilt from my backups and other people's backups, but there's still a few things that were missing. Some interviews, and especially the uh, Lee Harvey Oswald bonus episode, no one I've talked to has it, so that's one that's scarce. Well, uh, Albie, you haven't talked to me about this because I've got that one. Uh, But you don't have a U.S. mailing address. I know, but I've got an internet connection, so I can send it to you. I'll give you a thank you. But actually, the one that we couldn't find, because I've been looking, is our Quantum Leap podcast of Miss Deep South. So if anyone has that. All right, so send us Miss Deep South, (laughs) if you have a U.S. mailing address, and uh, you'll get Quantum Leap, the complete series, must-see television, an 18-disc set on DVD. You can skip Blood Moon if you want. (laughs) Included for a limited time is my I Voted sticker. It'll be on the outside of the package. How cool. 
All right. Yeah, um, free sticker. Free sticker, folks. For a complete list of what we are missing, please go to quantumleappodcast.com slash missing, and you can help us out. We'd really appreciate it. But since we are on the subject of feedback and our listeners getting involved, we actually do have a bit of feedback on the Facebook page, which might be worth us having a look at. First of all, I found a really cool tweet. It's by a person called Twin Dad. It says, do you have a friend, a co-worker, an acquaintance who isn't acting normal? Reach out. Ask them if they're really Scott Bakula attempting to change history for the better. It's quite possible. I shared that on the Facebook page, and we got 94 shares of that picture, including one from J.D. Schwartz, who is Scott Bakula's manager and friend. Love him. Yeah, he put on his uh, page, What a cool post to see tonight. It put a smile on my face. Wouldn't that be something if it were really true? <laughs> he's he's a great guy. I follow him and I enjoy corresponding with him. He's he's really nice. Yeah. All right. In response to a post I put on the Facebook page about the burger theory, Albie, do you want to remind our listeners what the burger theory is since you are its creator? That in ev- at least my version of the burger theory, in every episode there's something that connects to the next episode. It's a random thing that just connects everything. And I don't know if it was done intentionally. I still don't know. Tommy doesn't know. I've asked him. <laughs> but if it was done intentionally or if it was just one of those things where they had the same thing on the brain as they were writing and it just evolved over time. Well, I posted a couple of mine. Obviously, the trope namer, Genesis to Starcrossed. In Genesis, Dr. Berger features prominently wherever there's anything health-related in the episode, like the quiz to try and determine if people have lost their memories. Microwave popcorn. <laughs> Mini skirts. Pantyhose. <laughs> <laughs> hey, that's come full circle. Serenity asked me what pantyhose were because she had no idea. Oh, that's cute. So yeah. it's, it's over. Pantyhose are over. And in Starcrossed, a burger is also prominently featured as Donna seems to know Sam's preference by instinct. We've also got a link between Starcrossed and the Right Hand of God, which is the next episode. Sam's actions breaking Donna into the Pentagon to see her father inadvertently caused the Watergate scandal. And in the Right Hand of God, on the television at the bar, there is a news broadcast talking about Richard Nixon being investigated for his role in Watergate. Uh, it was a simpler time back then when crime could get you to uh, quit your job as president. Yeah, <laughs> jail too. Yeah. But uh, it, was a, it was a simpler time, wasn't it? A break-in. That was considered bad back then. Now, anything goes. Yeah. Well, anyway, also a link to the next episode, which is how the test was won. Gambling and cheating are major themes in the right hand of God. And in How the Test Was Won, all the ranch hands gamble during a poker game and one player cheats. It's connected, I'm telling you. Yep. Now, we had a connection given to us by Kelsey M. Young. She has a connection between one strobe over the line and the next episode, which is the Lord Voldemort of episodes, which cannot be named. (laughs) Thank you very much. (laughs) Cats show up wherever there's trouble. Edie's apartment was full of cats and a lion tackled her. And then Sam sees a black cat show up during the Halloween episode. Perhaps it followed him from the previous leap. Ah, that's a good one. Yeah, it certainly is. I put a little post up just asking about kind of wibbly wobbly timey wimey butterfly effect things that could happen with Sam's intervention. Uh, Suzanne Smiley, who's one of our crew, she has one. She asks, what if Sam's success in the Roberto Leap somehow influenced Donna's marriage to Sam in some way? Starbright and Project Quantum Leap were both located in New Mexico, so Roberto would have been a local program for them. 
Maybe Donna saw an episode of Roberto and somebody that he interviewed influenced her decision to marry Sam, so he effectively ended up undoing his own marriage to her, butterfly effect and all. I wish this had been much more fleshed out, but it's been a while since I've thought about it. It's a fun way to come up with alternate timelines, and with time travel, anything is possible. I've gone cross-eyed. <laughs> I'll have to re-listen to that a couple more times before I get it, but I trust you and, and the feedbacker. There are many ways to get into contact with us and just Google us if you're really worried that you can't remember any of them that I listed before. And we will most likely use your comments on the show at some point when we get around to finding them and reading them and regurgitating them. (laughs) Okay, Uh, Albie, would you like to hear my theory of podcasting? Sure. Okay, well, first we watch and enjoy a series and then... We try to come up with some thoughts for each episode and then get really annoyed and frustrated and scrunch up the paper so that your thoughts all cross over each other, enabling you to skip over episodes within the series lifespan. I like it. This is why we're in Quantum Deep. Here's something for you to ponder, Albie. Is it ever actually stated on the show that the show is set on Earth? No, not that I'm aware of. What made me think of this? Something quite unrelated. But there are times when you learn something that's so amazing or so mind-blowing that you have to share it. And I've recently learned that while amnesia is a very real affliction that someone can have, uh, I've recently learned that it's actually impossible to ever forget your own identity. It's that kind of fundamental to your own being that it's something you can never actually forget. And this idea that a person could forget who they are, like Sam in Genesis or like in The Born Identity or countless other media. Or Gilligan when he got hit with a coconut. Yeah, it's just a writing device that was invented to tell a good story. So what does this have to do with my original question? Well, let's say we wanted the show to be as realistic as possible then that would mean we need some way to explain this thing that happens, which is apparently impossible. My theory is parallel evolution. Have you ever heard of that? Yes, like the Cro-Mags, right? Evolution essentially occurs from the need for a species to adapt to its surroundings in order to survive. And that's why there is so much variation even within different species throughout the world. But sometimes, for some unknown reason... Some species which are situated very far away from each other and are in entirely different environments still evolve in strikingly similar ways. That's what's called parallel evolution. So you're talking about ones that don't have a recent common ancestor? Possibly, but also just they share striking similarities even though there's no real known reason as to why they should be so similar. A perfect example of this is marsupials. Marsupials are a type of mammal where the young is actually born much, much earlier than it would be for a placental mammal, and it gets raised in a pouch. Nearly all marsupials are native to Australia, but there's one exception. Do you happen to know what it is? I don't know of a marsupial that's not in Australia. No, you've stumped me. It's actually in your country. Seriously? Oh, opossums. Opossums, that's right. Yes, 
For some reason, opossums evolved in the exact same way as other marsupials, despite being on the other side of the world in a vastly different environment. So it proves that it definitely can happen. Wow, I just assumed they were imported from Australia no, at some point in the past. No, they are native wow. to America. I am fascinated and flabbergasted. So it's possible that the Quantum Leap universe actually takes place on a planet that for some reason has evolved to be very similar to Earth, with similar places, similar creatures, similar history, uh, and which evolved parallel to ours. And I would guess that this is the reason why, although the way their bodies and their physics work is similar, but not quite the same as ours. Could this be why in the Quantum Leap universe, suffering from amnesia does make it possible that you can lose your sense of identity? Is this why clothes can be made more malleable so that they can fit a different body size or shape? Is this why supercomputers are able to access information that could never have been stored anywhere? What do you think of my idea? It's fascinating, and I'll give you that as long as you give me the reason why he didn't see his reflection in the platter. Because <laughs> I think that's not as far to go. Well, actually, I did have a reason for that. I think okay. that on this particular planet, which is somewhat parallel but not Earth, supernatural beings also evolved. Mm. We'll call it ERP. Well, another possibility is parallel universes, which is the idea that there are an infinite number of universes running parallel to our own, and that means that theoretically everybody does every possible event and every possible outcome is achieved. So is it possible that the Quantum Leap universe is actually in one of those parallel universes? I think that's very likely, and I I would agree with that theory. I always have. And there's actually a book that I just read. It was really good. It was recommended to me. It was written by Taylor Jenkins Reid, and it's called Maybe in Another Life. And it, the book is uh, based on that theory. There's just a little decision that uh, the lead character, the woman in the book, makes that's really inconsequential on the surface. But it's a fork in the, her life, and it sends her life in the two different directions on parallel universes, and it's very interesting. But uh, I would recommend that. But yes, I believe in parallel universes because I have to because in some universe, I'm happy. Well, I think you need to spend more time with your friends, Albie. That's why I'm here. Yeah. Well, parallel universes is probably a good theory for us because a lot of time travel theories depend on parallel universes as well. And the time travel isn't so much actually shifting your point in time. It's shifting yourself to a different universe, which has entirely the same events happen up to that point and then can be changed after the point that you've actually arrived at. I blame CERN. But uh, yeah, I didn't really have a great big Quantum Deep segment for today. No, that was pretty good. The entire science fiction double feature show, you could say, is one huge Quantum Deep segment. But it was something that did cross my mind and that I thought would be interesting to talk about. That was very interesting. Thank you for that, Hayden. No worries. Okay, so what have we got next? I have no idea. That's the trouble when you watch the episodes out of order. They're intended to be able to be watched out of order. But then you don't know where you're going to end up next. You will see us all around at some point in the future or possibly in the past when we do the time warp again. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Quantum Leap Podcast, hosted by Hayden McQueenie and Albert Burge, with contributions from the Quantum Leap Podcast Facebook fans. 
visit us at quantumleappodcast.com. To support the show, please go to patreon.com slash quantumleappodcast. This episode has been edited by Hayden and Albie. The executive producer of the Quantum Leap podcast is Albert Burge. Christopher DeFilippis, Juan Murrow, and Hayden McQueenie are the co-executive producers. The thoughts expressed on this podcast are those of the individual and do not necessarily represent or reflect those of the Quantum Leap podcast, its partners or affiliates. The Quantum Leap universe and all it contains is property of Belisarius Productions and Universal Television. The Quantum Leap podcast is not affiliated with Belisarius Productions or Universal Television, and no copyright infringement is intended. Please visit barrenspace.com for this and other amazing content. The Quantum Leap podcast is a Barren Space production. It's it's like under pressure and ice ice baby. It's basically the same. Yeah, that and um, gimme 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 and that song that Madonna does. Mm, sooner or later. Can't remember. I'm going bananas. Can't remember. True blue. This used to be my playground. Uh, I tell you what, it's like you've got your own ziggy <laughs> in your hand. <laughs> I have something in my hand. <laughs> we are so going to we are so going to wear out this handling sound. <laughs> uh, speaking of Body of Evidence is a great film. I'm sure I don't it know is. If you've seen it lately? You should check it out. Nobody calls me dummy. All right. Um. Pause because I got to check the wings. Yeah. No worries. But don't don't pause your recorders. They have to link up. Yeah. Okay. No worries. I'm not going to touch it. Okay. I'll be right there. All right. Alexa, stop. Alexa, thank you. You're welcome. All right. Turn the hot box off. That's good. They need to make an Alexa sex doll. That would sell through the roof, I reckon. Yeah, I think they should combine the two. Uh, I don't know if you've been following um, real dolls, uh, but they're getting more and more advanced, like Cherry 2000 every day. Yeah, I heard a funny story about... <laughs> about <laughs> See, I can't this even... is why this I can't is the even, B show. I can't even say it without la- laughing. I, I heard a, okay. a tale about um, this happened recently, and uh, they were demonstrating a brand new type of sex doll at some expo, and uh, so many people <laughs> used it and did horrible things to it that it ended up destroyed. Aw, sad. <laughs> it's seen some horrible things. Hopefully she wasn't artificially intelligent. Now I feel bad. Oh, <laughs> uh, well, never mind. Oh, nice. 2018 Common Error. Common Error? I can't say Error. Error? 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 Error. Error. It's Common... Uh, uh, but yeah, like I said, there's many ways that you can get into contact with us, and we can will... you can you can you say it right? Say what? Or, right? Can you say it better? Can you say it better, uh, Hayden? 
Okay. So there are many ways. Oh, I know what you mean. <laughs> there are many ways. There you go. To get in contact go. with us and a lot of Rocky Horror Picture Show references here. I don't. I don't know what that's about, Hayden. Uh, I watched the Rocky Horror Show recently. <laughs> it's a great show. Great show. Yeah. Happening live around the world right now as we speak. Yeah, but I think uh, I was going to chuck in um, the time warp at the end there. So no singing. No singing. Oh, no, I wasn't going to sing it. I was going to put the actual recording. Oh, okay. Just for a bit of fun. You and you're popular over there, down there, under there. Oh, that's what comes with being Melbourne's most in-demand gigolo. It's exhausting. <laughs> it's exhausting. The first one we're watching tonight, talking about, is The Curse of Pahotep, which is Season 4, Episode 20. Season 4, Episode 20, which is 420. Very nice. You... Except it's Tahotep, not Pahotep. Damn it. The Curse of, <laughs> the curse of Tahotep. Edit me good. The Curse of Tahotep. <laughs> I'm keeping this all in, you know. <laughs> Damn it. We need we need stuff for the uh, blooper reel. I don't know why I keep pronouncing the P when it's silent, because I watched the whole episode and, and they never said it the way I say it. But I have problems like that. Edmund, what in the... Ow!